Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening and welcome to Fun Man About It it on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Rachel Jacobs. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And and we are (laughs) co-hosts through this sort of weekly journey through all things fermented. Uh, Found wherever good podcasts are found. Archived right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org as well. That is day four of New York City Beer Week. Yeah. The 10th annual New York City Beer Week. Woo! Uh, very excited about this scene. We have 30 breweries now brewing actually within the city limits, and uh, this is our 10-day celebration. Yes, it's a bit more than a week. Uh, 10-day celebration of all things beer in New York City, and we had an amazing opening weekend, including our fermentation festival. Yeah. That uh, We got some good recordings from. It was really great to celebrate uh, fermentations of all kind under one roof. Yeah, and we had the most um, meteries, I think, in one That's location right. in New York ever. Is ever? that right? Yeah, ever. Okay. And it wasn't even that much. I mean, <laughs> no. it was, it's like six. But <laughs> it, was it was more than two. <laughs> but it's amazing. Mead is catching on and, and doing other things. And, and uh, we're really excited to celebrate that. And hopefully we'll do some more mead tastings throughout the year. I know I talk every year how I, I, I started Mead Week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, which is like, it hasn't really taken off. It's really just me Not celebrating yet. mead for a week. Uh, by my lonesome going where, where I can get good Good mead. It, it's a slow build. It's, <laughs> it's building a, up. It's a slow build. Um, but it also encompasses, uh, that is going to happen again this year, and it, you, we scheduled it to be the third week of May so that it coincides with the New York City Homebrewers Guild Mead Meeting. We have an annual mead meeting, which people come from far from uh, from all over the place, and we celebrate mead. Such a lovely beverage. Oh, yes. I've been to that before. It's yeah. very fun. It's a good one. Um, but it's beer week now. Let's, yeah. Enough about mead. Let's talk about, what do you think about mead? Duh. Oh, gosh. I mean, do I get so what? Uh, what beer all week? Actually, not at all. <laughs> what events are you looking forward to this beer week? Uh, this beer week, uh, we're playing our part. Uh, you can go to nycbrewed.com and find out all the different events that are happening around town. Um, our part for as Fifth Hammer Brewing Company in our tap room on Tuesday night, tomorrow night. Mary and I are teaching a, a class on yeast, um, and then on Wednesday night, I'm playing some saxophone um, and pairing a bunch of cheese and beer together in our tap room. On Friday night, Mary is celebrating uh, a collaboration we did with each other at Fifth Hammer um, called "I'm a Very Friendly." It's a petite IPA, and we did a version of it with mango and the, and over the regular version. And then we took some of the dregs with uh, one of our guests. Uh, that you may remember from Arcane Distilling, uh, right. Dave Krako. Uh, he distilled some of the some of that beer into a beer whiskey, and he kept all the volatiles from the hops. It really, really smells like like the beer. It's amazing what he what he's doing with his vacuum distilling machine called the Two Headed Monster. In the back of, <laughs> it's like a, Brick company. yeah, it's a it's like a small scale um, vacuum. It's big now, distiller. Because he got a new one. And it's oh huge. My God. It's and still like smaller than a normal yeah. distiller, which is like really cool. 
Yep. Uh, you can distill a barrel worth of liquid. Yeah, and like anyone can stop by and take a look at it um, Mm -hmm. in Industry City. It's worth it. Um, And then the grand finale of the whole week ends at uh, Randolph Beer Company on Sunday, um, where Where we'll hop all the Rupert's Cup uh, contestants. So we all made a smash beer. State malt and state hops. Um, Celebrating New York State. And uh, there's a small mini competition with that. And uh, people will vote on the best beer. Um, but also you can vote online for uh, favorite brewery, favorite brewery tap room, and favorite brewery character, New York City brewery character, um, or bartender, um, best uh, best brewery cat. I forget. There's a couple different best things. Brewery <laughs> best brewery it's cat? The one, it's the one from Single Cut. <laughs> well, put your vote in now okay, at nycbrew.com. And then we will be uh, giving out these awards while tasting on all of our individual smash beers at Sunday at at, uh, at at Randolph Beer Company. Where is Randolph Beer Company? Dumbo. I don't have the exact address. Do you have it? I don't. Um, I assume it's somewhere under the Manhattan Bridge. It's Overpass. It's down there. It's close there. <laughs> it's like by the entrance to it. I've, I've done a beer delivery there, but I don't, uh, I can't really tell you how to get there. That's okay. That's what the Google machine is for. Anyway, uh, that's all I got. Uh, While we're wandering oh. around the area, if we run into any interesting plants, I think our guest might um, be able to help us out with some yeah. of that. <laughs> Let's talk plants. <laughs> what a strange transition. So our guest today is Sarah Beer. Is that correct? Actually, it's Sarah Burr. Sarah Burr. I think That's, just that works so well. But with it's the, Beer Week. We're no, about. it's Burr just, Week. Just for today, <laughs> I, I'm I'm totally cool with being Sarah Beer. Um, <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but with a B I R though. Yes. 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 But um, when it's not Beer Week, I'm I'm Sarah Burr. Fantastic. Fantastic. And that works really well for uh, the topic that we're going to cover today, which is uh, you just wrote a book about uh, foraging fruits. Is that correct? I did. It's called The Fruit Forager's Companion. And foraging fruit is the thing I do to be happy and stay sane. <laughs> I love it. When did you start foraging? How did you get into this? Uh, and where are you from? And how? Uh, when did you realize you were going insane? <laughs> <laughs> when were you, were you losing your sanity? You know, <laughs> I think when did we get these sound effects? <laughs> I think it's just now. Actually, I heard this thunderclap and right. that kind of creeped out. Um, actually, I think it's when I started going on more walks that I realized I was happier. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is how I started foraging. I'm a walker. I just am a restless person physically. I have uh, this existential dread inside of me and just going out and being in the world and not inside my head is something that is, I really value it. It's, it's, it's what keeps me going. Although I'm a happy person too. I don't want to sound all, <laughs> all, all bummery. Um, and actually being here is wonderful. So I live in Marietta, Ohio. It's a small okay. town. In Southeast Ohio, it's where I grew up, and it's where I said I'd never live ever again when I was 25. How far from Wheeling, West Virginia is that? Oh, that is a fine question. I would say it's about an hour and a half, maybe. Is that where Billy the Kid is from? Uh, I don't know that. that, That's where I'm from. Oh. You're from Wheeling? Sort of. I spent some some formidable years in Wheeling, West Virginia. Chris has a very interesting journey about (laughs) his youth, which we can go into some other time. I'm from that about it. Some other time I'm familiar about it. Stay tuned <laughs> for the life of Chris Husme's youth. Anyway, but yeah, uh, I love it. It's beautiful out there, uh, that, that part of the country, and it's, it's overlooked. Um, yes. 
Yes, it is beautiful and it is overlooked. And I never knew how beautiful it was until I left and came back. Um, so I, I had been going to Ohio State University and I dropped out. I had what I called my early onset midlife crisis. I just felt like I had no purpose in life. What am I doing? Uh, and so I moved in with my parents and got a job doing whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I, I think I shrimp, shrink wrapped pasta gift baskets. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was really, it was fulfilling. Um, <laughs> I had, it's, it was, there's a zen to that for sure. <laughs> Definitely. I do that for fun. <laughs> So um, my the town that I live in now and that I grew up in and was unintentionally living in then is is a small town and if you're a 25 year old with with big dreams but you don't know what those are it's kind of a tough place to be there's sure. not a lot happening in so what I did with my ample free time when I wasn't shrink wrapping was I read a lot of cooking magazines and cookbooks. So I'd always been into cooking and just, you know, silly, goofy stuff. But I got really serious about it when I started reading Sever. It was in its very early days mm-hmm. at the time. And there was a wine shop in town that had a little news rack. And they would give me the, the issues that they didn't sell, which was pretty much like all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and Cook's Illustrated was... One of the magazines, too, I was really into reading. So I got very into project-oriented cooking, I would call it. And the thing that really kind of got me on this track... Actually, I'm not talking about foraging now, but um, they they will meet eventually. Yes, yes, this, is, sure. this, is, this is actually quite appropriate for the show. So I got into okay. making sourdough bread. I saw Nancy Silverton on... I don't think it was baking with Julia, although she was on that show too. It was like in the kitchen with Master Chefs, and Julia Child mm-hmm. hosted the show. <laughs> and the baker Nancy Silverton was on the show, and she talked about making these different breads with a sourdough starter. And I thought, well, I, I want to do that. So I got her book, Breads from La Brea Bakery, and she talks about almost all the breads in the book use a, 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 a starter um, in combination with commercial yeast in some instances. I kind of didn't have any idea what I was doing, uh, but I followed her directions. And her her starter is a slurry of water and flour, and you kind of inoculate it with um, the wild yeast from, from grapes, right, to, to kind of, like, ensure that there's going to be some action in there. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time, the sourdough starter, that I was responsible for a living thing that wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, it, it kind of centered me in this way. I ended up getting this energy. I really, I, and I get this from plants too. I think when you're handling a living thing, especially with food, like a dough is alive and there's this energy transfer yeah. between you and the dough. And then there's something specific to bread about that, right? It's like it feels like a baby's butt. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's it's a little more tactile than other mm-hmm. things Aww. that are. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there was there was something just so encouraging about that. Something clicked, and it kind of set me off on the the path of. Um, I went to cooking school and I became a food writer. Da 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 da. I uh, lived a bunch of different places, but all those places where I lived, I would go out on these these long walks exploring looking around, um, and it wasn't until I lived in Portland, Oregon, I had a young daughter, that I started noticing plants on these walks. Um, 
So we, and it, you know, it rains a lot there. It's a cool city, but it, it rains a lot. And that's kind of like not something that makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So we'd go on these stroller walks in the rain. And we lived in a crappy-ish neighborhood. So if you crossed 82nd Avenue, you kind of get to the nicer neighborhood where people had plants I just loved in their yards. Um, I think since it's so relentlessly gray, I started paying attention to the plants growing in everybody's yards and what they did throughout the seasons because that was the thing that was dynamic. The weather was not particularly dynamic, but looking at in the springtime, the that is probably happening right now, um, which this is February, by the way. February, yes. Yes, yes, yes. February 26th. As we are speaking in, right now in Portland, Oregon, the Daphne's blooming and it smells so so gorgeous. I don't know. Have you guys ever smelled? No. What is that? It is a, it's a flowering shrub. And um, I'm, this sounds so silly, but I always think about, you know, of course, Daphne from from the uh, Mystery Incorporated gang. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, the flowers are small and they're, 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 Attractive, but they're not eye-catching. But the, the 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 scent is so so strong. It's almost like too crazy for some people. But it's got this really intense aroma, and I, I noticed it because of the smell. So I'd push the stroller along, and I'd just say out loud to my daughter, like it'd just be naming off plants. It's, it's, it's kind of great when you have a baby because you can talk to them when you're walking around with them, and just like. <laughs> You know, it's your free pass to be the talking out loud to yourself person. (laughs) I'm talking to my kid. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) So I'd say, oh, hey, there's some camellias. There's some flowering quince. There's this, there's that. And it was something I started looking forward to every day, this this rhythm of checking in on my my little plant friends. I'm terrible at growing plants, by the way. Just, <laughs> like, I'm a plant appreciator, so sure. kind of have to... Goes uh, with the foraging. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is when I really started noticing... I've always enjoyed being outside, but I, I didn't notice the the plant aspect too much before that. But I'm also kind of like a cheap scrounge. And I, <laughs> so I'm a forager for lots of things, you know, going to thrift stores and sales and, and stuff like that. I almost don't differentiate. Um, Some of my favorite brewery furniture I found as a dumpster dive, just stuff I saw on the porch driving home. And I was like, I want that chair. So it's there right now. It's there, yeah. Explain Wait, some of the stuff in the brewery. Like those little kid chairs. I had like these little tiny chairs. Anyway, yeah. but yes. Like the that's kind the you for- see in a school. We're in the city, and that's the kind yeah. of foraging I do. It's like, so as far as plants, uh, when did it move on to, to fruits? And when did it move on to eating the plants that yeah. you were finding? Those are both excellent questions. Um, well, surprisingly, I was just not like skipping around willy-nilly, shoving strange plants in my mouth. Um, <laughs> but that's the fun of it. <laughs> I would say I started with familiar fruits. So my definition of foraging isn't exclusive to wild plants. Um, some people might say, it, it inclu- like under that umbrella is, is gleaning, which is using cultivated food that, that no one else is, is taking. So, oh, like apples on the side of the road. Exactly. And with the exception of picking blackberries and blueberries on hikes in the woods, um, apples were probably my first, oh, this is going to sound so cheesy, my first foray into foraging. <laughs> so I started with... I like the alliteration. It's good. <laughs> I started with things that are just totally recognizable. You know what an apple looks like. 
Right. And I wasn't even thinking. I was like, oh, free apples. So I um, I didn't. This is also, this is not good. I didn't ask. It's good. I, I hated selling Girl Scout cookies when I was a kid. That's when you actually went door to door. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like cold calling. That is that is not my thing. So um, I was just terrified to ask this person if I could relieve them of their rotting apples <laughs> or the ones that weren't rotting. Um, so nowadays I do that. It's like a good little nudge for me to to. To interact. To interact with humans. Yeah. <laughs> Usually they're like, yeah, sure, take it. <laughs> and sometimes I'll have some great conversations. Um, my my, desi- my de- desire for fruit has has surpassed my terror <laughs> mm-hmm. of, of the cold calls. Um, but back then I wasn't. I was still terrified. But so I would just like go sneak these these apples. There's actually a word for that. It's called scrumping. Have you heard that before? I have heard that. Before. It's such uh, a word fun before, word. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a great word, and um, so it sounds so much cuter than like stealing. stealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Petty petty fruit theft is really what it is. So I would go engage in petty fruit fruit theft and bring these apples back. They had a great flavor, but the texture wasn't terrific. So I made them into applesauce, and that that, that sounds so dull. But when you have great applesauce made with apples that have a terrific flavor. Um, sometimes the texture can be so silky. Sure. It's, uh, it's and, and you know, it's free. I mean, making applesauce, it's actually pretty easy. It takes probably more work than I would. I always say stuff like this. Oh, you just do blah, 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 blah. You know, not everybody's going to make their own applesauce, but, um, you know, if you like to cook, do it, do it at least once. It's pretty <laughs> simple, right? You just mash up the apples or do you cook them. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And spice them up with a little sugar. And, you know what? If they're yeah. good, I always do that last. So um, you never know. And this is the fun thing about foraging. You, the, When you go to the grocery store and you buy fruit, you kind of know what it's going to taste like. But when you are scrumping it up <laughs> <laughs> or or getting things from out in the wild, it's, it's variable. And that keeps me on my toes as as a chef. Which I appreciate. I also should say I don't. I'm not like a restaurant chef. I'm a, I'm a recipe developer, and I I went to cooking school. So I always feel weird about calling myself a chef because I feel like you kind of like got to put in your time in the restaurant trenches, and I'm not doing that right now. But right. Um, okay, as a chefy cook, chefy <laughs> chefy cook, chefy yes. cook. It, yeah, it keeps me it keeps me on my toes as a as a chefy cook. I, I engage in the food differently. Got to got to keep thinking about it. Um, so uh, back to the apples. Yeah, you to make applesauce. It depends on what equipment you're using, but the the simplest way is you just chunk them up. You don't even have to peel them. Mm-hmm. The great thing about if you're foraging for apples, they are most likely not sprayed. Um, right. They probably have those cute, adorable little modely looks to them. Um, so you don't need to worry about peeling them, whereas with conventionally grown apples, you, you might you might not want any you know chemical contaminants on the outside. Although you could rinse them off. I, I've never really done a study on that because I'm not a uh, scientist and mm-hmm. probably would get bored trying to research it. But um, not a problem when you're foraging. You can just <laughs> you can just cook those skins right up. So you just chunk up the whole apples. You don't even have to take out the stems or or the cores. And add just a little bit of water to a pan and, and gently simmer them. And eventually the apples will give up their liquid. Sometimes they give up a lot, sometimes not much. So you might need to add more water. And once they get mushy, once again, it depends on the apples, like super duper mushy. What you can do is run them through a food mill. That way you don't have to worry about having peeled them or anything. It just saves you so much time. And the cool thing, too, is that if they have the 
darker skins, they lead they they give a nice rosy hue to the applesauce, and it just you know how color makes things different, yeah. just makes yeah. it feel like it tastes different. Um, there's probably maybe a slight like tannic element, but not really. It just actually no, I don't think that ever happens with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't recall having applesauce that's uh, rose applesauce with a tannic grip before. It's just it just it's just pretty. So that's that's uh that's the applesauce story there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that we're gonna take a really quick break and come back on episode two hundred something during Beer Week of two thousand eighteen with Sarah Burber. Sarah Burbier. Sarah Burber. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to episode 227 of Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are here in the studio with our guest, Sarah Burr, author of The Fruit Forager's Companion. Thank you for being here again. And uh, thanks for not leaving during our break. Really? <laughs> well, I thought about it, but it just didn't seem like a, a good time. There's some good stuff to forage around Roberto's. Um, I think they 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 have that rooftop uh, garden, uh, yeah. and there's like strawberries growing outside in barrels. I did not know that. Yeah, I believe it. They do some nice stuff here. Hands off, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to take this. <laughs> um, uh, but what about pawpaw? Yeah. What are pawpaws? Yeah, you talk actually a lot about pawpaws and you're writing it in the book, especially. And like, we don't have those here. Um, and I don't really know what it is. <laughs> sure. Well, you don't have them exactly here, but I bet there are some pawpaw trees growing in a 50 mile radius of where we are. I grew up with a pawpaw tree growing in my backyard um, or in the woods in my backyard. And I didn't, I didn't even know. Um, there was no fruit on the tree, by the way. They don't always fruit because they don't always have to. They have other ways of of reproduction, so the fruit can be kind of secondary, and that's why they're a little bit um, finicky. I don't want to say finicky. They're just sort of like, ah, eh, we're not doing fruit this year. It's pretty finicky, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, pawpaws are a fruit. They're the largest fruit that's native to North America. And they grow in deciduous forests 
from southeastern Canada all the way down to northern Florida and about as far west as the Mississippi River. I mean, it really depends on the vegetation that's around, and they don't grow at altitude either. So um, they grow throughout Appalachia, but like not up, up, up in right. the mountains. And they are, they have lots of folksy nicknames, Hoosier Banana, Indiana Banana. <laughs> the new one is Hipster Banana, which I think is hilarious what? because if you meet people who are really, really into pawpaws, they're just like dorky, nerdy fruit people in their 50s and sometimes <laughs> younger too. But like they're, 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 they don't even know what a hipster is. So, um, What do they look like? The pawpaws? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant the dorky pawpaw oh, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might yeah. have an old polo shirt yeah, right. on and a hat and uh, chinos. Um, so pawpaws on the outside, they, they're not that easy to spot unless you're looking for them. Their skin is green, uh, usually with some like mottly freckles on the, um, the side that faces the the sun we'll call that the a side okay <laughs> okay and as they as they ripen um they call it color break i call it the pawpaw glow they almost have this this aura so there is a little bit of a powdery bloom on the outside and then there'll be almost like this yellowish shine coming down from them <laughs> i'm making this sound like a whole experience but they they are a little bit more noticeable when they're ripe and yet you can go walking in the woods and, and not find them at all and so their shape is Oblong, so... I'm looking at a picture, and it looks like a kidney. Like a kidney, okay. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, is it all right if I say that sometimes they fuse together and they look a little bit like testicles? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay um, or internet radio. Occasionally, you will have the, the stroke of luck to find some testicle-shaped pawpaws. <laughs> <laughs> but typically, they are not like that. It's just the single fruit. And they do kind of grow in clusters or sometimes... Just individually, and the size can range. Like a one-pound pawpaw is pretty, pretty big. They're not, mm. they're not as big as most mangoes, but that's kind of like a default shape and sometimes flavor um, descriptor too. Yeah, so mango like a parallel mango crossed with a banana, some nice good top citrus notes. They're very, very tropical in flavor and also huh. in the way they they smell. So you'll get all that kind of stuff, but also just very. Very distinct pawpaw, its own thing, and they're very highly perfumed once you once you rip them open. Mm. So I didn't even know these things existed until I was um, not living where they grow, and I thought, oh, that's fascinating. Maybe one day I'll find one. And when my family, when we moved back to Ohio, um, so my husband and my young daughter and I, I started going on walks on trails behind her daycare, which is like the best place for trails to be because you can kind of like get a real quick. A little woods walk in um, before <laughs> you pick your kid up. <laughs> Love it. Um, totally worth it, right? It like pays off in 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 uh, nice mom dividends. Nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> I come back and I'm I'm just a little more like ready to in the zone. Ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready to be in the mom zone, but um, that's where I'm in the me zone. So I was out in the me zone in the woods walking around, and this would have been late late summer is when they they ripen typically. So I was walking in the woods. I didn't even know anything that they'd grow there. But I, and seriously, it was in, like right in the middle of the trail, splayed open, was was this thing. It was bright yellow with these glossy, dark brown seeds, um, almost lurid, just there. 
And I thought, what the heck is that thing? So I picked it up and I smelled it. And once again, they're just so incredibly perfumed. I thought, oh, this, this smells like something you should eat. So I, I came back the next day. Um, having done a little bit of research, I was like, well, that's definitely a, a pawpaw. The leaves are also, they're large leaves. They, they're pretty easy to identify. So I started eating these in the woods, just like like some monkey, <laughs> just tear into them. <laughs> and this is this is a really, whether it, you're at like a you-pick farm or anywhere, if you could just stand somewhere and, and eat fruit from where it grows, it's just like it'll never... Okay, sometimes it'll taste better, but <laughs> but uh, there's just something that locks in about the experience. Sure. So that was this definitive Papa experience I had, and I just thought they were amazing. I lived in Ohio growing up, and I didn't think of it as a notable place at all, or or a terrible place. It was just meh. Okay, this is Ohio, but it made me think about where I was from in a totally new way. I was like, as if this amazing fruit grows here. What else can be here? Perhaps not other amazing fruits, but like maybe I should just pay attention to what's around me sure. instead of going all over the place uh, seeking stuff that I supposedly already know about. Why don't Why don't I look for small things around me? So I just uh, started collecting these pawpaws and trying to figure out what to do with them. There aren't a lot of recipes for them. Um, people in... People in Appalachia, there's like pawpaw custard pies, things like that. A lot of not that functional found on the internet recipes. Pawpaws don't do very well when they are exposed to heat. So mm. you can bake them, but especially if you like a simmer them down, they don't, I don't think they taste that great. All those great top notes kind of fade away and there's this, this funky pawpaw back note that, that lurges forward. <laughs> do you end up uh, like bitter in the end? Bitter, but also, gosh, it's really hard to describe. Because when I say funk, it's not like gym socks funk, but it is. A, it's like it's the thing that's polarizing about pawpaws sure. moves to the forefront. Um, Would you say that it's uh, got a any like a durian kind of? Not in the not <laughs> in the smell s- like a corpse. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't smell like you know cat pee, but. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's just this like back note that moves to the, to the front. Um, so I was trying to think about ways to feature these things because, you know, because once again, as a, as a chefy cook, I, I just thought I'd stumbled across this like gold mine of inspiration for, for fun. And I made all kinds of crazy pop-up things. Um, some of the obvious things you can make that are pretty, I mean, just like put it in a smoothie. You don't want to eat the skin. So you can, um, and the seeds you do, you don't want to eat. The seeds can give you, they're also really big. So they don't look like something you the should eat. The seeds are big? Yeah, they are about as big as um, almonds, oh. let's say, but they're shiny and, and dark and smooth. Gotcha. They look very similar to the seeds of like a custard apple. Mm, yes. And in fact, I believe the two are related botanically, but don't quote me on that. i I'm assuming that they are. I haven't looked into it either. A lot of this stuff I I know when I go back and look in books again, and then I'll just like forget totally. (laughs) I I have a library background, so I'm I'm super duper into books, and I have this like surface knowledge of of things, um, unless I write it down. So I should actually walk around with a little notebook to remind me of this stuff. But (laughs) I already know what I know what the pawpaws look like. I know not to eat the seeds, Um, but once you get the pulp out, which at that point, it's like baby food almost. Okay. So it's not sliceable like a mango would be. Then if, if, if it's like that, it's definitely not ripe. A ripe pawpaw, you can 
gently press it with your thumb and, and feel it give way mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and they don't ripen off the tree. So it, this is one reason you don't see them in the grocery store. Gotcha. They, they don't ripen off the tree. They That's have a very short shelf life. And they also are, are fragile. So the best way to get pawpaws is the frozen pulp that has been liberated from the skins and has had the seeds extracted. Uh, is there another word for pawpaw? Uh, Aside like, from and, and hipster banana? Uh, uh, yeah, no, again, so I get pulp usually from Goya. Or like I get a lot of fruit pulp from Goya or Lafay mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, they use Spanish. <laughs> is there a yes. Spanish word for papa? Um, no, but papa is in some countries the word for papaya. Aha. They, those are not related. So they're both tropical tasting fruits. Papa that I've just spent like 10 minutes blathering on about is not a tropical fruit. Um, and it's interesting. So I will sometimes, you know, I do a lot of like hashtag Papa things on, on Instagram. And every now and then some skincare thing will end up liking my post because they have pa- papaya extract interesting, yeah. <laughs> in, interesting. in their product. Uh, so, so yeah, if you do searches for Papa, in fact, I believe the New York Times had a picture of a papaya once. And a story about, about pawpaw? pawpaws. Ah. Yes. What a faux pawpaw. Yeah, that might be some hey. apocryphal pawpaw right. snob story. <laughs> but <laughs> Okay, that was pretty good. I'm proud of it. Faux pawpaw. Okay. I just looked it up and they are part of the same genus. Uh, custard apples and pawpaws. Okay, okay, good. So they are related. Um, anyway. I'm going to go to uh, a question that Rachel had about oh, sure. talking about your frustrations of a failed recipes. Oh, what? Yeah, you asked. Uh, you talk about in the book frustration of, of failures when it comes to forged food res- fruit recipes. Yeah, um, and it's a good frustration, I will say. Um, it's something that helps you grow as a person and, and as a cook. This is a great segue from Pawpaws because I've made some of the most disgusting things ever. And I made a papa enchilada sauce, <laughs> and I, um, the the earthiness of you know like dried red chiles, and the, then the, this papa taste. Also, since they don't like to be heated, you know, like layering my enchiladas and baking them and stuff. Um, yeah, that was that was gross. It was hmm. awful. I can still think about that. That was probably like the lowest bar <laughs> <laughs> of of gross taste I've I've hit. But there have been a lot of other things. Um, there have been times I've had fermentation gaffes. Like I have a kraut, oh gosh, a crock of kraut. That's so hard to say. Crock of kraut? Yes, yes. Yes. So, you know, like I sometimes I've thrown some berries in there. It's not the throwing of the berries in there that, that was the problem, but I found out this, this very lovely ceramic crock that I got from my mom secondhand. Um, like every time I did something in there, the, it would. It was just like not not quite right, and I would end mm-hmm. up throwing it out. And then I realized, even though I had cleaned it out really, really well, there was a crack in it. Oh! And I thought, oh, I, maybe there's something hanging out in that crack that is just not playing nice with all this stuff. So even though sometimes you think you know if you follow the method right and you've got your proportions right and all that, there can still be something else that happens. Sure. Um, I think I, what did I have in there? It was maybe just like some cranberries I added at some point. Um, but and they hung out in the crack. And 
Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the, right. the crayons in the crack. Yeah. Of a crock. Crack. crack of the crock. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> Going with some good alliteration today. Yeah. I also have a black thumb when it comes to making vinegar. Huh. Yeah, I know. It's like supposed to be the easiest thing, right? Yeah, usually you just like leave out one and then it becomes vinegar by itself. Yeah, you, you like you don't try <laughs> yeah. and then you've made vinegar. So I'm not yep. exactly sure what I did. I think it was like I let it go too long or not long enough. It was just really harsh, harsh, harsh. So like there was a batch of cider vinegar that I dumped into the toilet. Although I will take the, the opportunity to say that if you want to make your own fresh cider, you just run apples through a juicer and that's fresh cider. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't mind cleaning up a juicer, then it's really fun. To, just do it once, you know? Like if you get a bunch of miscellaneous apples and you don't know what to do with them, you can make cider and you can be like, oh, I made cider um, without a press, right? So you can... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun, yeah. So th- we don't want to talk about all the negative things. You found some really beautiful things and, and put them in the book. How's the book laid out? It starts out with me blabbing on and on in a lovely tone. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I talk a lot about... I just really... It's like a manifesto. Mm-hmm. I want I want people to, to get excited about... Not foraging necessarily, but going out into the world and noticing patterns in their daily lives as they're, they're going about their routes. Um, so I go through a lot of, I walk my daughter to school in the morning, it's a couple blocks away and I just pass the same trees over and over and over again. And I notice those and they just like, just like when I pushed her in the stroller, there, there are these little things that give my day structure in this, this, this lovely way. I kind of develop a, a relationship with them. And when you are able to do something like that um, and you're interested in foraging, it's, it's that repetition and seeing things over and over and over again. It's not about finding and picking and bringing things home. It's about just looking and noticing. Um, and, and that is the thing that has, as I was... <laughs> In my, my darkness earlier on, talking about uh, <laughs> how I feel like I have a lot more stability and um, enjoying my life. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. I, I want to touch a little bit on some of the... So you have... Your book goes through like various um, kinds of fruits that you can find in the wild, um, including like common ones like blackberries, blueberries. Um, but you also talk about very uncommon ones like you won't buy in the grocery store and maybe you haven't been out picking like choke berries and like there's a bunch of berries that like look scarily like nightshade um (laughs) so (laughs) like when you were first like coming up with recipes or like finding these things out in the wild did you like have a something to tell you that these were okay to eat or did you just like we're like i'll try one and if i don't die i'll develop a recipe with it that is a fantastic question. And um, also, anytime you're writing about foraging, I'm, I'm just terrified that some nincompoop is, is going to be like, oh, here's a berry. I'm going to eat it. But um, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you do also point out like this is a berry that you should not eat like nightshade. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Even there are very few things... People get so paranoid. I know, for instance, those little, they're called mock strawberries. You've probably mm-hmm. seen them growing in your yard. Um, so they're related to strawberries, but they're tiny and flavorless. 
and harmless too if you eat them. But I know there are also there's also the the opposite of like the there's the opposite nincompoop who you know like looks at a thing and they're afraid that their kid's gonna get sick like that kind of dealy. So um, I love researching things and like I said, I used to work in a library, so I knew where to go. Well, I've worked in like five libraries, whatever. Like <laughs> in every library where I've worked, I knew where to go to to find the print materials um, I I wanted. But I also don't even have. You know what my favorite thing is? Actually, people. People are the best resource um, as long as you trust them. Yeah. But I don't know if you guys have ever gone on a walk with somebody who just has just like this magic person and they see yeah. everything you don't see and they know everything or a lot about it yeah if you have someone like that in your life just like figure out a way you can go on a walk with them you know say like hey let's go on a walk then i'll buy you a beer or something like that <laughs> mm-hmm. um and just notice what they do and most people who are into plants love talking about them they're just so excited that somebody else is that's what I love about fruit nerds. They're just like so excited that other people like weird fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, so find a fruit nerd. It could be somebody who just has a tree growing in their yard. So get over the, the Girl Scout cookie cold call fear and just knock on their door. I know this. I'm, I'm just a kooky person, so I'm okay with it now. Like just be the kooky person and be like, I love this tree growing in your front yard. Can you tell me about it? Um, and... Hopefully they will love <laughs> to talk to you about it. And if not, then, you know, take a picture and figure out what tree it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different apps for that. But my, th- I always say go for living people. Also, the USDA has um, the USDA plant guide. Oh, yeah. It's an online yeah, database. Just... It is very extensive. So uh, plants throughout North America, it tells you if they're invasive or not. That is That is actually the resource I go to most often um, when I'm not talking to someone I trust, a person I trust, I, I, I look at that. I trust that website a lot. Our friend Steve Brill has an app as well. Wildman yes. Steve. Yes. 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 He gives uh, walking foraging tours in uh, Prospect Park. Prospect Park, Central Park, all the New York City yeah. parks because you keep, you keep talking about uh, asking our neighbors about the tree in their front yard but there aren't many front yards here in New York. No, but we have Prospect <laughs> we Park which parks. has so much growing <laughs> in it that you can yeah. technically eat. So, yes, the lack of front yards but the availability of classes yeah. is a wonderful thing. So if you can take a class um, and it doesn't even need to be necessarily like there's not a foraging class that you can get into or if there's none available. Oftentimes they're just, you know, what's another great thing? Arboretums. So mm-hmm. um, oh. there's one there's one in my town to go to the botanical garden. Right. There you go. Awesome. Do that. Um, where I live, there's just a park that's an arboretum and the trees are labeled for you. So that's you pretty go good. there and there's actually pawpaw trees there. Like it just tells you it's a pawpaw tree. So um there's service berry trees there. Uh, that's another forageable. They're they're little like blueberries, but they are service berry. Yeah, you wanna know why they're called that? Why? There's always like twelve stories why a fruit's called that. But um so the best explanation I read with the most credibility was that they bloomed in April when you were able to bury people. It was too cold oh. to dig in the ground, so they would be the I guess they just had frozen corpses sitting around until April when the service berries would bloom and then you'd have the 
the flowers at your funeral. That, I mean, that, that oh, all so sounds like a little funeral service. Like, Mary. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. I thought I I thought for some reason lovely that like servicemen would eat them during the Civil War. That that's just some idea I made up. That's not definitely <laughs> not true either. But they taste really delicious. They're sort of blueberry shaped. Somewhat blueberry flavored, but they have a grapey flavor too. Hmm. They're a little seedier than blueberries. Um, they're great snacking berries. There are a lot of recipes, a lot of fruits in the book, or some fruits in the book. I don't give recipes for because they're similar oh, enough yeah. to other fruits that you can if interchange with some of the others. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you got a brain in your head, you can probably, and you're confident enough, you can probably switch switch things out. Um, and some of them are just great for eating the way they are. Um, I feel that way about ground cherries. Some people call them husk cherries, and they're also being sold commercially now as as golden berries. Mm-hmm. Um, they're related to oh. they're related I to like tomatillos. These, yeah. yeah, they have a little they have a little plant jacket, I guess, on them. Yes, right? yes, yeah. uh, yes. Um, the the papery husk. Yeah, I used to think those were gooseberries. I think somebody once told me they were. That they are you not. Know, well, this is another international mix-up. So in um, in some countries, they're called Cape gooseberries. I think because oh, they got little capes. Oh, oh, oh no! But I love that idea. They're little jackety capes. Um, <laughs> I think it's because they were something about South Africa. Oh, maybe. from the Cape of Good Good Hope. Perhaps, yes. I think that might be the connection, but let's just pretend they have capes, and that's why. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so you can cook with those the way you would. They're actually not that like cherries in flavor, but you can definitely make pies with those. You can make jam with them. I think they've naturalized in Hawaii, and that's kind of like an island specialty, although I haven't directly been to Hawaii to to. Um, if anyone wants to fix that for me, I'm I'm available to. Sarah uh, <laughs> available for a book tour in Hawaii. <laughs> investigate the the Cape Gooseberry slash Ground Cherry situation there, and I think there's a pohas, maybe what they call them there. Hmm. Um, so so anyway, you can do things with them, but I I just like eating them out of hand. I, that is one of the things I do grow. Um, although they are wild, you can find them in. Oftentimes in fields, although you might want to be cautious about eating them if it's a field where there might be some kind of agricultural runoff. So that's a good sure. thing to go through in your head. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Is this plant possibly contaminated with pee, <laughs> like dog pee, chemicals, whatever. But, you know, if, it, if, it, if it's in the air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was terrifying. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as, as city folk, too, that might be something you, you might want to. And yeah, also, probably. like, it's I love it, I live in a rural area, but it there's a uh, chemical plants around. So I got it. I I'm not in the clear either, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I like but I like eating the ground cherries just just as is. So I don't give any recipes for them because I'm, I'm a fan of just like snacking on them. It's the best thing ever. Sure. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. I think we have to wrap up. But before we go, um, so what is the your name? Your your book rather has a very long title. Uh, so what's the full title of the book? When and where can people buy it? And uh, how do we find you on the Internet? Sure. So the book is called The Fruit Forager's Companion. It comes out in June and you can get it um, via massive Internet retailers <laughs> and your favorite independent bookstore even better mm-hmm. yeah, yeah or uh i'm certain i will put up a link if you visit my website which is sausagetarian.com sausagetarian yeah so i was a um actually so i used to work at a sausage cart in the west village 
And I was like, like a fake vegetarian at the time, but I really like sausage. So I decided <laughs> I would just eat sausage when I was at work. And that would be like my special meat time. Uh. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So that's, that's uh, just kind of stuck. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Sausagetarian. All right. And also, if you like looking at pictures of plants, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, at Sausagetarian, and that's another way, uh, just following different people who put up pictures of plants, whether they're foragers or not. It's like great, great plant nerd community on there, so that's another tip. Of course, of course there is. Some of them ferment things. Oh. Like they forage assorted items and then make, you know, infuse mead with it or or whatnot. So there's, there's some great crossover there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Sarah Bird, thank you so much for being on Foment About It. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. This has been so delightful. Get her book, Forage. (laughs) I have the warm fuzzies again. That's right, so go out and find some strange plants in your neighborhood and ask your neighbors about them before you eat them. Pay attention to the plants around you. Exactly. Look around you. Life everywhere. Thanks for listening to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Foment About It. Foment About It. Foment About It. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, a podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.